Well, we are four days from the celebration of Christmas. For many of you, that will mean stockings filled with things like chapstick and hand lotion and gum and candy bars and possibly a brunch, some presents and family upon family upon family. Some will have a Christmas marked by simplicity. Maybe you have made a choice to give a minimum number of gifts, leave the television off, enjoy time together. Others may celebrate with the full American experience of gifts galore, big dinners, driving around in the evenings to see lights, and some of you may have this celebration replicated time after time after time over the next week and a half. But regardless of how we celebrate, the reality of what Christmas commemorates is unaffected. In other words, whether you celebrate minimally or your celebration is all out, it has no effect on the reality of what took place 2,000 years ago. Whether you give opulent gifts or minimal gifts is inconsequential in comparison to the greatest gift ever given. And that gift was not given with fancy paper, but rather wrapped in strips of cloth. And it wasn't purchased at a store, but rather it's a gift given of God's grace. My wife Barbara and I lived in Dallas, Texas for five years, and Dallas was a very interesting place to celebrate Christmas. Most years there's no snow, and we would take a little annual trip to one of the exclusive parts of the city called Highland Park, where people outdid each other in their external Christmas displays. Often you would see big bales of cotton brought in and broken so that they could cover the entire property with cotton to make it look like snow. Sometimes there would actually be live nativity scenes. Sometimes there would be mechanical camels and mechanical shepherds costing tens of thousands of dollars. Each year, we would go to a store called the Original Christmas Store. And every year, when you first open the door, there would be a new display for sale, often costing about $50,000 that some company would come in and buy. Maybe it would be an elephant that moves. Also part of our little annual Christmas trek was a window shopping trip to Neiman Marcus. A lot of people in Dallas refer to it as needless markup. And uh, Neiman Marcus is famous for their Christmas catalog. Things that you don't know that you need and you really don't, 
but let's pay way too much for them. I looked up what some of the items are this Christmas. For example, you can buy your college student a mink backpack for $8,000. You can get, if you travel a lot, you can get a very nice garment bag. It says, it's advertised as having soft leather. It's only $4,500. A nice pair of leather gloves, who doesn't need that? $900. Uh, a woman's shoulder bag, $3,500. And my favorite, you know how some people have like a bust of Mozart or something on the shelf? This is a bust of a tiger, $6,500. Now, who doesn't need that? And we look at this and say, why does a college student need a bag to carry their books around that's made of the hides of little weasels that run around and eat mice. And why would I pay $8,000 for it? It seems ludicrous to us. But for some, they would say, oh, what a precious gift. You know what? There's only one precious gift. And it's a gift that God gave. And whether or not we recognize it this Christmas... Whether or not we get so caught up in our celebration of the holiday really has no consequence at all on the fact that God has given this gift. And it's the greatest gift ever given. It's a gift of His grace. And so this morning, as we are four days away, I want to focus our attention just on five Short verses in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And encourage you to turn with me to John, chapter 1, as we are going to look at verses 14 through 18 of John 1. If you remember, when we went through this book a little over a year ago, we noted that John actually gives us a purpose statement for the book in chapter 20, verse starting to read in verse 30 and 31. It, he tells us why he writes the book. And verse 31 says, But these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote the book. He wants his readers to believe that Jesus is God. That he is the long-awaited anointed one who will sit on David's throne forever and ever, who will reign forever and ever, who will bring forgiveness of sin. And he wants those who believe in him to experience life eternal. That's his purpose. And as he begins this book in chapter 1, he has an introduction, like a preamble in the first 18 verses. And the themes that he introduces in these first 18 verses carry all throughout the book. For example, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, John tells us that Jesus Christ is eternal God. Verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 down through verse 13, John tells us that those who place their trust in Jesus Christ enter into a relationship with God as his children. And then in verses 14 through 18, John makes this point. 
that this thread, this, this foundation that goes threads all the way through the book, that Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, is God's expression of grace to humanity. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, is God's expression of grace to humanity. Now we just talked about grace in our series on the attributes of God. When we talk about God's grace, we're talking about God's goodness given to those of us who don't deserve it. All we deserve is punishment for our sin. Grace is God's goodness given to us, even though we don't deserve it. And here we see Jesus coming. The greatest gift ever given. In verses 14 and 15, we see that God chooses to make himself known in a man, the God-man, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. Notice with me verse 14. Verse 14 is the most concise verse in your entire Bible on the incarnation. That means God taking on humanity. This is the most succinct, clear verse in your New Testament talking about God in the person of the second person of the Trinity coming to earth, taking on humanity as the God-man. Here's how John describes it in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see, we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, God chose to make himself known in a historical man, Jesus. Fully God, fully man. John here in verse 14 puts it this way. He talks about the word, and you have to go up to the verses ahead. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, to be reminded that that's how he's describing the second person of the Trinity. In verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Talking about the second person of the Trinity, and we see that as we come down, and here he's talking about the Word becoming flesh. That the second person of the Trinity, the Son, takes on humanity... And it says, he dwelt among us. Now that little phrase, for this first century reader, would have just exploded. Remember, all they had for a Bible at this time would have been the Old Testament. The New Testament's not been written. And John uses a very particular word here that in our English Bibles is translated dwelt among us, but in the Greek text... The word is the Greek word for tabernacle. That structure that Israel, that became the center of Israel's worship that was movable until Solomon's temple was built. So literally, the verse could say the word became flesh and 
tabernacled among us. Now, why is that important? When they saw that, if they were familiar, if the readers were familiar, the hearers were familiar with the Old Testament, which many of them would have been, they would have immediately thought of Exodus chapter 40. Because in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38, we find the dedication of the tabernacle. And what happens in Exodus chapter 40 is they dedicate this tent of meeting. In verse 34, it tells us, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's hard for us to grasp because God is present everywhere. He's spirit. But he made his presence visibly known by the outshining of his attributes so that Israel knew that God was there. God was dwelling in their midst. He tabernacled among them. Notice in that Exodus 40 passage, it says the glory of the Lord rested there. Now when we come back to John chapter 1 verse 14, it says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we saw his glory. You see, for the hearer, the reader of this verse, they immediately would have made that connection and said, just as God took up residence among his people, Israel, when he took up uh, residence in the tabernacle, so also now God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God has come to us. He's broken through. He's left the throne rooms of heaven and come to earth. He's come to us. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. That phrase, only begotten, does not mean that there was a time when Jesus wasn't. It means that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. So here John is saying, God broke through. He came to us. And he's a God who's full of grace. The next verse is John's record of John the Baptist's testimony that this is the one to whom he looked forward. This is the one that is greater than he. Last spring, I did something I should have never done. I sat down with a calculator and figured out how much money... I spend on taxes every year. Should have never done it. I put in my federal number, my state number. I put in the amount I pay for Social Security. Then what's really discouraging, as best as I could, I tried to figure out how much sales tax, and there's so much sales tax in your gas, in in, in your health insurance, all kinds of tax that we're not even cognizant of. And I conservatively figured out that I work at least through the month of May just to pay my taxes. Now that was discouraging. I should have never done that. I don't know what possessed me to do it. In fact, 
If we really figured in all of the different hidden tax, I'm guessing we're, most of us are about working about half the year to pay our tax bill. Now that seems burdensome. Do I think that the governor of Iowa is going to leave his mansion? Or the president of the United States is going to leave his mansion and come to my house and ring my doorbell and say, Steve, I agree. You, you are under some burden there. And I came to you because I'm here to help you. Probably not. Right? It's probably not going to happen. But that's what God did. You see, he saw our plight and a burden that was so much greater than a tax burden. He saw our burden of sin and he did not wait for us to come to him because he knew we wouldn't. He came to us. And in so doing, he came to us with the greatest gift that's ever, ever or ever will be offered. A gift of grace. You see, each and every one of us are under a burden. The New Testament says it's a burden of sin. And it tells us that each and every one of us are guilty. Romans 3 says, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 says the penalty or the, the wage of that is death. Separation from God. And we can't fix it. God saw our plight. He saw our burden. He came to us. He left the throne room and came to a stable. He broke through. The second person of the Trinity came to us. God made himself known by means of a historical man, the God-man, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ. Verses 16, 17, and 18 explain to us that that step that God made is an expression of his grace. Jesus is God's expression of grace to humanity. Look at verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That could be translated grace for grace or grace instead of grace. And he explains that verse in the very next verse because verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. You see, God giving Israel the law was an act of grace. It showed Israel how they could live a pleasing life before the Lord. It was also an act of grace because it showed humanity that we can't do it, that we can't be good enough. It points out our desperate need for a Savior. So here in this verse, John is saying that Jesus' coming is grace instead of grace, meaning it's a greater grace because Jesus' coming... Verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. He's a greater grace because he came to pay the price, to pay the penalty for our sin. He came 
to die. In fact, His coming shows us that God is a God of grace. Verse 18 explains that we can't see God. We can't see the Father. We can't see the Spirit. In fact, chapter 6, verse 46 of the Gospel of John also highlights that. No one has seen the Father except the one who's from God. He's seen the Father. But here it tells us that Jesus Christ was in this intimate relationship with the Father. The second person of the Trinity is in this intimate relationship with the Father. Verse 18 refers to it as being in the bosom of the Father. He's come to show us God, to explain Him, to exegete Him. You see, Jesus' coming is God's gift of grace. Now the question that faces you and me is twofold. Do I recognize that? Do I see the significance of Jesus coming to earth? You may be here today and you haven't thought about that. Maybe you haven't thought about the fact that as you stand before God, you bear your own sin and and you can't fix it. You've been trying, but the Bible tells us we can try our whole life. We can't do good enough to fix that. Don't leave here today without coming to a point where you realize that God has a gift available to you. And if you're here and you haven't thought about that before, I'd encourage you when the service is done, just pop back into our prayer room just for a second. One of our elders will be back there, and he's got some material back there that talks about this gift that God has given to us, and he can give it to you, and you can take your own Bible and look up passages that talk about the fact that Jesus is God, that he came to die for you and then rose again from the dead, proving that he's God, and that by putting your trust in him, you can be in right relationship with God. Another takeaway from this passage is for those of us who have put our trust in the person of Jesus Christ, we recognize why he came. But are we thinking about it this week, are we able to really have joy in our heart this week? Are we able to look beyond the glitz of Christmas? A few years ago, I was up in the Boundary Waters, and I was able to listen to a father instructing his children that electronic games were off limits in the Boundary Waters, and he was getting some pushback. What? I can't play my game? And the dad said, no. There's no electronics in the Boundary Waters. They were kind of going back and forth. I know what the dad was trying to do. He was trying to get them to look up. Look at the beauty around us. See the bald eagles. See the otters. See the moose. See the splendor. Instead of down here. 
delete, 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 play an electronic game. It's so easy for us to go through this week and not look up. So I have a couple of simple little things to suggest that we as a church family do this week just to experience some joy that comes from really, in our minds and hearts, dwelling on the greatest gift that's ever been given. Every time this week, when you see a manger, you probably will see some mangers. If you see a manger this week, tell your brain, if when I see a manger, I'm going to think of a cross. Just to remind yourself that he was born to die. To think of that great gift of grace that Jesus' birth represents. He came for a reason. To die for us. And secondly, when you're given a gift this week and you say thank you to the person who gives it, think about just whispering up a little breath prayer to God. You don't have to fold your hands. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to get on your knees. But just in your heart, just a little quick and thank you, God, for giving me the greatest gift that's ever been given, Jesus. You know, we could get excited about having a backpack that's been made of slaughtered weasels that have been running around eating rodents. Or we could get excited about the greatest gift that's ever been given. God's gift, God's Christmas gift of grace. Father, we thank you that Jesus is an expression of you, an expression that you are a God of grace. And we pray that our joy would rest in that truth this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.